Welcome to Sipsy Journal's latest podcast. This time we're talking about upfurbishment, designing new pump technology into older spaces. And I have three guests with me today. I have Edmund Vaughan, who is the operations director at Chapman BDSP. He runs a team of 25 MEP engineers and environmental consultants and leads on a number of high profile projects, many of which are refurbishments. Glenn Miller from Grunfoss Pumps is a products and solutions manager and he's joined the company in 2005. He has a electromechanical background and extensive experience of delivering solutions to the commercial building services industry. And I also have Linda Dingley here, who is the marketing manager for commercial building services. So I'd like to welcome you all here this morning. Hello. Hi. 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 So I'll briefly describe what we're going to be discussing today. We're looking at the increased focus on embodied carbon in the construction process and, and how it, it's affecting procurement and particularly the design of commercial buildings. For example, requirements for whole life carbon assessments in the London plan mean developers are now having to calculate the carbon emissions resulting from materials, construction and the use of a building over its entire life. And that includes demolition and disposal. This means more and more buildings are being refurbished than demolished as designers look at how much embodied carbon can be saved by retaining buildings and in some cases building services, plant and equipment. This is not always the case, however. Sometimes operational carbon savings will outweigh the embodied carbon. Design teams such as Ed's will help decide whether these buildings will be renewed or demolished. So I'll start with Ed and ask you what kind of projects you involve in at the moment and what proportion are kind of refurbishments rather than new builds, particularly in the commercial sector, I guess in London where we are now. I think the majority of the buildings that we're currently involved in revolved an element of retained structure, whether that be the basement or the superstructure, but also there's a balance between whether the client wants to retain the facade, and that's really where it changes from a minor refurbishment, where you're really looking at the M&E systems and really optimising those to actually a major refurb where you're, you're taking the facade off, improving the facade conditions, and then you're effectively putting a new systems in, and that's often the switch point, because at that point they want to do extensions, and it's easier to do that once you've stripped the facade off. But we are working on 242 Marylebone Road, now called Metropolis, which is an extension, but it's retaining existing facade. And we are extending upwards and changing a number of the systems all the way through to 120 Fleet Street and uh, 81 Newgate Street, which are retaining an element of structure, but then changing all the facade and, and, and increasing that. We're also looking at sort of what I would call more minor refurbishments, which is, you know, you're keeping the existing systems within the building and trying to adapt them to suit the maybe plugging in an air source heat pump or or changing out more efficient uses and increasing the efficiencies of the emitters or the pump systems or the, the ventilation. And what's kind of driving these decisions? I mean, the circular economy is all over the place. Yeah. So unlike uh, even 18 months ago, we now start every single project with looking at whole life carbon. Every single project has a feasibility study to see whether we're doing nothing, whether we're doing minor, major, or or a complete knockdown and restart. And that goes along with the cost plan in stage zero, uh, ROBA, whereas we never used to do that. And it always used to be retrospectively done before. So it does come down to whole life. And it's the balance between the amount of embodied carbon you put into changing things versus the operational efficiencies of the building. So we're having to delve deeper into facade we're having to delve deeper into efficiencies of plant than ever before for what's actually existing and what we could do to it to improve it and glenn from your perspective you're seeing this change 
in the UK market and perhaps beyond in, in other markets that Gronfoss is operating it's, in? It's a bit of a seismic change because effectively the thing that's really kicked it off was the last COP meeting. And there was, you know, post-lockdown, people have thought about what's going on. And there's been a massive change towards sort of identifying and reducing the embodied carbon within all sorts of products in buildings and um, within pumps. But the thing is, it's not just in the UK, it's across the world and effectively Europe as well. They've really gone, gone into it. Um, there's been some very, very large challenges because, first of all, you kind of look at, um, I think you're all familiar with the TM65, where you look at the, the various parts within the product and you kind of have to identify the carbon within that. But Gromfoss as a company, we've kind of had to look at our entire product range. And from that, it's kind of like spanned out into something else because you also have to give improvements. You can't just say this is it because the world doesn't stand still and there's ever-changing targets driving down the amount of embodied carbon. So we're looking into like digital twinning on our logistics and manufacturing. So, you know, are we looking at changing our manufacturing process where we manufacture and all that kind of thing? And then to make that fit into this, this seismic change of requirement of information has been quite hard. I mean, maybe, Linda, you could sort of uh, bring on this a little bit more. Yeah, it's it's quite interesting, actually. There's been, as Glenn uh, said, a, a bit of a seismic change. And some of this has been driven because we know the government want to achieve net zero emissions by 2050. And we also know that it's, and it's well documented, that altering and upgrading existing building stock can actually make a big difference. A recent report actually came out just on Monday, which said that at the moment the UK are fourth in the index for G20 countries on retrofit. And basically, we in the UK, were not refurbing quickly enough. I mean, fourth may not sound too bad, but actually all of the countries are pretty terrible, to be frank. Germany is the best. But at the moment, our score is only a 52.8 out of 100, which is really quite, well, leaves a lot of room for improvement, I think. And Ed, sort of from your perspective, looking at calculating the carbon in pumps and other services, how difficult is that at the moment because there's no net zero carbon building standard at the moment it's been developed on as, as we speak probably during another year or so so how are you making these assessments when you've got to come up with this huge calculation uh, as we're relying quite a lot on uh, certain manufacturers getting up to speed with EPDs for the embodied elements, but a lot of digging around into almost the existing plant as well, which is pretty hard to come by. So it's actually a lot of research going on from our point of view, just into you know what manufacturers have produced in the past and what we can get there. So that, obviously the existing equipment is really important for the, the operational energy elements that we're studying and having to drill down into the efficiencies that are there. But the EPDs are becoming more prevalent and I was uh, saying to a colleague the other day that I think in the next couple of years our specifications are going to be outright specifying that every single product has to have EPDs because there's just no way that we can give accurate data to our clients and advise them that that is the best product going forward so uh, I know Grumfoss are leading the way in terms of pump technology in terms of uh, putting EPDs out there and it's really useful for us to then put that information back into our modeling and really compare the the existing Plus, the, uh, you know, if you're changing it for um, embodied carbon and then the operational efficiency is, is, is important to us as well. There's a big balance there, though. And there's two numbers you have to give there, isn't there, Glenn? You've got to give the embodied and the 
operational efficiency to, to, to help them make that decision. So you tend to find that the embodied carbon is kind of like a, a, a static figure. So it's based on physical things. It's the running carbon that's the dynamic. And this is where it actually comes down to the type of product that you have, whether you use variable speeding pumps, whether you use closed loop control. But it kind of spans out as well because you can't really take it in isolation. So an example I, I can give is that if you've got like a, a circulating system and you're using a pump on closed loop control and maybe on differential pressure or maybe on um, temperature, you're kind of looking at the dynamic effects of load cycles around the building. So to actually calculate that out over sort of a, a long period of time is quite hard. And again, I think, you know, with technologies coming in like uh, digital twinning and things like that where you can do the estimation and then we can actually scope out to see the rate of accuracy against real-time products but that's going to come further down the road because you need the data evidence to back that up but it's the dynamic part that is like quite hard to do and I, I think as, as you first set out on this journey like, like with the embodied carbon in sort of like coming into law and things like that there'll be certain standards that we can fit and that'd be quite easy Right, the things that are going to make hard is when there's a governmental push to actually reduce down the dynamic carbon. And, and, and that's going to be quite hard. And that's where people like Edmund will have to sort of look seriously at the way buildings work rather than how they're built. So it's going to start merging into one. And that involves control systems, pumps, the type of materials you use, even in the way sort of like fluids flow around buildings and things like that. So it's going to get harder as time gets on. So the embodied energy element, once you have those EPDs, it's fairly straightforward. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's the it's operational side yeah. is, is yeah. always yeah. going to be the bigger challenge. De- definitely. Well, I mean, as, as you were saying, then the EPDs are there, then that's great. There's one number, but then it's drilling down into the operational, how it works. The issue we have with existing buildings and, and, and changing them and retrofitting them is the fact that they don't really have controls, half, half of them. Um, the meters just aren't there to tell what, how the building is actually performing at the moment in different areas. So if you're you know, changing a pump out or if you're changing a fan or any other system, how does that actually affect it? Well, it's really hard to sort of model that a benchmark it because we don't actually know how it's performing at the moment because the meters aren't there. So uh, getting that information back is, is really where we hope the industry is going to be moving and there's a lot more metering on that. So, so something like Neighbours, obviously, they're, 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 <laughs> exactly. in, they're encouraging the, the metering of existing buildings. Then I guess you can make those decisions whether you keep that bit of HVAC and then or yeah. replace that. We're, we're doing a lot of work now putting in metres to understand uh, on buildings where they're performing at the moment before we make the decisions about what happens to them. And, and Neighbours has been a massive benefit to driving the industry in that direction and I think it's only going to expand quicker and quicker the more that uh, you know agents uh, want the stamp on their building to in order to let it and tenants are becoming more uh, aware of that's the real number that's not an EPC which as we all know is fundamentally flawed in its calculations. Yeah I was just going to say just to throw a fact in I think it's quite interesting that it is estimated that 80% of the buildings that will still be standing in 2050 they've already actually been built but 20% of them will actually need refurbing by 2030 which really isn't far away now. I think all of these figures sounded as if oh we've blown the time the fact is we don't and we need to be doing something now and, and we need to sort of engender that spirit to encourage people to take action. Especially when it comes to uh, lease breaks and you know landlords don't really want to do anything unless it's a, you know, a, a desire to get another tenant in. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're working on a number of projects now where 
not I can actually <laughs> speak about them very much, but uh, where live changeovers are happening. So the buildings are you know fully tenanted, and we're having to do phase changeovers for heat pumps, for pumps, for fans, uh, while the tenants are still in occupation because they know that in order to keep those tenants, they need to keep improving the efficiencies of the buildings, and they don't want to have an empty building in a few years' time. I think the the change to EPC B uh, by 2030 is a big driver of that. But that in you know that's eight years away. But developers are thinking about it now because they. They need to have the EPCB throughout the whole of the, the lease time. So that's that's the real driver that we're seeing at the moment, and it's great for our industry. And uh, I can only see that you know increasing as we get closer and closer to that to that point. But it's amazing. So for where you are, clients are very very aware of the of need to improve their buildings to attract the tenants. Yeah. Even the smaller clients that wouldn't previously have thought anything different, they are now having to do all these studies to make sure that they are they have buildings that are available for tenants in the future that meet their, their aspirations and, and the, the minimum standards. Obviously, the investment community as well, yeah. they, don't, they don't want to have no, stranded assets. Exactly. Uh, ESG is, is, is become more important for investors in the last 18 months, and every single major developer we have is getting a loan from somewhere. And in order to have that loan, it's a, it's a I don't like the word green loan, but you know, is that's effectively what it is. It's got conditions that are saying we're not going to invest in you unless you improve the efficiencies of these buildings. You know, these pension funds are investing only on the basis that that's where it's at. So developers are all all very very much aware that that's what they need to do. Which, as you're saying before, you have to do something then. And um, we all want to improve the efficiencies of buildings, and we all want to make sure that we are making a, a better world for us all but and that's that's even more in focus now isn't it with energy costs rising the way they have been so there's always been good reason to actually look at all of the systems within your building to make sure they're as efficient as possible but this is even more true now because the return on investment which used to be maybe three or four years has actually gone down to less than a year in some instances and costs are still rising and of course then of course you've got your carbon savings as well so it is actually a win-win situation yeah, I think probably on the engineering side, you'll probably find there's, there'll be like some rolling Darwinian thing here where like you need constant adaptability mm-hmm. to improve because the actual margins are going to get more and more finite. And it's going to happen rather than what you think. So at the moment, we've got this massive chunk where we can pull the um, in-body card and, and efficiencies down. But once those... Once we start to get rid of those wide parameters and we start coming down to finite parameters, we're going to have to start thinking some really good inventive ways to actually re- reduce these finer margins. Because, you know, so there will be a point, does that? Parasitic loads, which is something that's never really been mentioned much before because it was actually an insignificant number, is becoming more important. It, yeah, it's an um, issue. So all of those things that are on standby, all of those things that are running at low loads or things that are running for some unknown reason when they shouldn't be, um, those are the ones that are going to make the difference because little steps will you know rein it back in so i think parasitic loads we're going to be talking about a lot so more so that's about controls and under, understanding when equipment is running and then more input from the manufacturers yeah but i think this is where the that actual sort of like the end to end husbandry happens on a building because like on the design and sort of like build so you can only do so much a lot of it will actually come down to the people actually look after the building so, it, you know, it will be your contractors who come in and they say, right, OK, you know, there's so much you can do with lights and stuff like that, change your light bulbs and all that sort of thing. But it is understanding the building. So, you know, if something's on all the time, can we go and look at it? If something's not working correctly, even down to the system, sort of maybe a valve in a system not working correctly, that's making something switch on. That's where you have to do the constant husbandry to drive that energy down. <coughs> 
And traditionally, we haven't been very good at that in this industry. You'll, you'll finish your contract, the annual handover, the contractor build it, walk away, and then the poor FM, maybe the handover's not great. They don't know how to operate their building efficiently. But neighbours and, and other schemes, you have to rate that building on a regular basis. So there should be a driver there to have FMs talking to the engineers. I, I think, and unfortunately, our contracts are still set up to almost finish at PC still. I think neighbours is going to change that. And uh, we are going to have to be working with the operation. The more we look at it, the more we think, actually, all our models are fantastic and we can design it to the nth degree. But if it doesn't actually work how it's meant to work or actually we don't really understand how the building is now operating, that, you know, if the tenants are only in at 50%, why are we still banging out the stuff at 100%? You know, there's just no point to that. So having you know, intelligent manufacturers who are helping the operations of the buildings going through it is a, is a real benefit going forward. 70% of neighbours is probably in the actual operation rather than the design, which is only, you know, finished at PC and we run away and it's still got 30, 40, 50 years of its life to still run. So. Yeah, across Gromfoss, you know, especially in the UK, we're seeing our relationships changing quite significantly with the entire value chain all the way through from consultancy through to FM. And it's more of like a, it's a bit naff for me to say, I want to say, it's a bit like consultants, consultants sort of thing. So basically what happens is, you know, we kind of, obviously we're going to sell product, we're going to sell systems and things like that. But we kind of get more involved with the conceptual design, with the concept, obviously we don't design it, but we can sort of put in ideas and things like that. Then as that moves through to the M&E contract, it's about sort of, we kind of help out how can we do the offsite build, how can we reduce carbon that way and then with the fm companies it's about well when do you come and do the energy checks when do you do all of this other stuff to bring that down so we're seeing our role changing within the industry quite significantly would you agree with that linda yeah absolutely i think up until now within commercial building services is for fm companies a lot of it has been on visual site so they focus on the things literally they can see and not on the things they can't like the plant rooms mm. and there's not always been the depth of understanding within FM companies to understand either how it works or the impact it can have. The the ones that are always focused on are the, the lighting and the, you know, the very obvious ones like that. But there are so many other things that if FM companies understood better, that would actually make a long term impact on both the comfort levels of the people within the building and the building actually how it works itself. So I think there is a sea change happening, but we just I think would all like to see it change perhaps a little bit quicker. Mm-hmm. I think there's an issue there, though, with the way that FM contracts are procured in as much as it's a race to the bottom in terms of costs and in service charges and things like that. And I think that's the bit that's got to ultimately change. And it is, you know, there are much more enlightened developers who are running their buildings. And I think, you know, neighbours will have, I mean, the FM companies have energy targets that have to be met in order to get bonuses or whatever it might be. And I, I think that that's a significant step change that needs to happen in how FM is procured. Because then it has a different mindset for what they've got to achieve as well. Yeah, precisely. It's like, I mean, service, the word service is a distressed purchase and it's one that people tend to run away from. Yet if you actually were to make sure that your plant system was properly maintained with a proper service contract, a lot of these issues would be taken away from FM companies. But once again, as you said, it's a race to the bottom in terms of cost. And even though the cost isn't significant, it's seen as an additional cost that perhaps isn't necessary. So has that message got 
through to the neighbours developers that they may need to spend a bit more money on the <clears> on, ongoing operation in their buildings. Yeah, so one of the the, the elements for for DF uh, design for performance in neighbours is the ongoing and how it actually the performance plan goes through. So they have to uh, sign up to the neighbours certification and what they are going to do in, to maintain it. And that often gets entered now into the FM contracts to to say that's what you will be adhering to. So they're, they're, they're passing it down, but they are aware of it. I just don't think we've had enough time to see how that's coming. You know, the buildings that, you know, Neighbours is only, what, 18 months old, really. And, you know, it starts, generally it started with the, with the new developments and it's going to take another three years before uh, it's even on site. And then it's another two years before it's actually operational. But there are buildings that are now, you know, design certified and are in construction. So, you know, we could be 18 months away, but then they've got to be fully occupied before they're getting neighbor certification. So, you know, unfortunately, the gestation period is a long time for this to go through and then for the feedback to come to the newer ones. So, unfortunately, you know, we were talking about the retrofitting by 2030. <laughs> Actually, you know, we might only be getting the first proper feedback and, and correlation on that by then. You know, the Australia is an example, which is, you know, pretty good. They took 10 years to really get enough data back to to say actually you know we really didn't do it properly and now we're having to do it properly and that's the time it's probably going to take the UK to do it so it's a mindset change the other thing is we always concentrate on London which unfortunately it's not just London it's a massive industry out there. The the other thing that we're talking about a lot at the moment is obviously the Building Safety Act Mm. which should transform the way construction works so there will be the golden thread on the high buildings at risk anyway and are you seeing that filter down into commercial not as quickly probably as the residential market it is it's being talked about a lot i haven't seen it being realized necessarily yet i think we're quite early stages of companies really getting their heads around what they need to do and there's there was a lot of talk of the building to perform there was a perform conference yesterday and you know basically trying to get the message out from the building safety regulator um how davis technical director at sibsi but you'll say it's not there yet. We've got some way to go. I, I don't think people necessarily all know what they need to do yet. I, I suppose it's that black and white, you know, you have to do this, have to do this, have to do this, have to do this. It is written down in a, in a lot of words if you read the whole thing, um, which I haven't. Um, but um, I don't think it's as clear, and unfortunately, until somebody actually gets picked up on it. Yeah, I think that's probably when everybody will go, nah! Um, so maybe when the HSE start... It, it, it could well be. Um, projects. But also I think it's the it's the operational again. It's sort of geared towards, again, we can design it as much as we like, but I think the the operational is so important for it as well. So I, I think the whole the whole sub- subject, you know, it's all, all right through the, the thread has been there's a static bit and there's a dynamic bit. and It's the dynamic bit that's hard. All around, and I think you know, even on the regulation and sort of advice from the government and everything, that will always change. It'll always be an ever-changing game, and it's going to be a moving target. So, I think there'll always be some element of confusion moving forward. But an interpretation as well, and the interpretation as well. And I think it's a it's a subject that will never go away. And I think until we get the hard, firm data to see if we're going in the right direction or not, it is going to be quite chaotic what we often find is when new stuff comes in uh it often contradicts something else that's there already so that's where we're not you know for example all the extra fire stuff which is obviously needed 
is often, you know, detriment that we have to put more embodied carbon into the buildings and we have to have more operational carbon often for testing because it's on a more frequent basis and things like that. So they are contradictory to each other and it's really treading that line. Obviously, one's law, the other one's uh, optional, as it were. So the fire is obviously, you know, much more important for, for safety. But uh, I think we, we all need to recognise that it's another parasitic load. All the testing happens um, and the, the Building Safety Act has increased testing far more than it had previously so that that's an important thing to capture as well do you kind of think it would be going down the road something that where the regulations and laws would change on the fire so at the moment we have like specific rules for hydrants and sprinkler systems and misting and things like that but again a lot of it is down to these parasitic loads of weekly testing you know and if you've got diesel systems and stuff like that you kind of like there's added stuff where you've got fuel on in the building and stuff like that so sort of like combining systems so for example booster systems and sprinkler systems do you think that might be something that's moving forward where we can start combining them because in the end a lot of it especially fire is around safety making sure it works when it's required and it does the right thing so the actual supply of the power plant to make that happen has to have the assuredness so you know, it might be something we'll look at in in the future a bit more. The odd thing is, and I'm sure I'm going to get shot by the sprinkler industry at some point, <laughs> um, is that in the residential market we've been combining booster pumps and uh, sprinkler uh, for, 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 for a long for time, a long time. Yeah. Whereas in the commercial market, they're completely separate. They have to be separate mm. and much more much more robust. It's in two some different ways. worlds, isn't it? It's two different worlds. It's, yeah. it's bonkers, and, yeah. and you think, well, actually, it, it's. People are awake in commercial buildings. They're much easier to get out. So therefore, it should be easier for the, the life safety things to, to work. Whereas in residential, people are asleep and, um, and in a very different environment. So you would have thought, actually, it should be more onerous for the, the residential yeah. than for commercial. But it is definitely the other way around. Mm. Honestly, um, with the, the regulations and the BSs and extra, they're so contradictory. <laughs> Most of the time, they all get written by different people for different aims. Yeah. And it will take a long time to combine those. And if, but then that, that has to change with the te- technology that are going forward as well. So It depends which yeah. shouts louder in the end. If, yeah. if yeah, energy true, true. is the most important thing and it's shouting, then that's the thing that will be driven and solutions will come out of that. Mm. But at least these things have been discussed now and recognised, which I think is a major step forward. So we're maybe not as far down as the road as we'd like to be, but we are at least on the road, which I think is something important. Yeah, I, I always, when, I, when we talk about the road, I always look back at, um, you know, Part L when it was first introduced, mm. which was only 20 years ago. I remember. And uh, th- at that point before that, people didn't really think about energy. <laughs> energy no. And exactly. you think how far it's come in 20 years. The problem Absolutely. is in 20 years time, it's 2042. And we've got only got eight years to meet our deadline. Mm. <laughs> so it's not long. No. And it's taken us a long time to get from 2002 to 22 with all of the changes. But it has changed. Yeah. You look at operational energy, and it's come down significantly in that time. And now we're talking about embodied and we're talking about yeah, more operational true. and we're talking about parasitic. So it's great. We're talking about more things. Mm. But time is, is a funny thing, especially in the construction when it takes a long time for gestation to come through. Mm. I was going to ask you about trends you're seeing at the moment in terms of commercial design driven by embodied carbon and all these other things you're having to take on board and the sort of neighbours. Is, is there becoming a, a sort of a template or is it everything is it's judged all- on a case by case? It, it's definitely on a case-by-case basis, especially when it comes to retrofit as well. The size of the building, the uses in the building, um, whether you need to have local systems, that's becoming more of a trend, definitely. Uh, you know, decentralised systems, because then the tenants are in control, you can shut them off locally, you don't have these big 
ducts or, or pump systems that go through the building. And I think that that's where it's moving towards more localized systems. If those systems could, can become as efficient as some of the centralized ones, and that's the challenge on the, the central plant, you know, central air source heat pumps are generally more efficient than your local systems. But I suppose you can control a sort of post-COVID world. You can kind of have different parts of the building turned on when maybe Monday and Friday there aren't that many people in the office. Yeah, I mean, variable flow systems, both uh, air and water, are here. They are have to be here. Um, air wasn't, and it is definitely. We're doing VAVs um, to a much smaller level now than ever before with CO2 and occupancy control. Pumping systems, we're trying to um, look at the diversity across the buildings. And, and then the central systems, we're trying to, to make smaller, so the, the embodied carbon is smaller, and therefore the, all of the overpressures we have to overcome as well is smaller. So we're definitely looking further into to occupancy levels and diversity than we, we ever used to. Uh, I think we were discussing before yeah. uh, about um, how we've oversized things. <laughs> it's our PIs on the line, and we always get 10% here and another yeah, 10%, 10% yeah. and we can't do that. Uh, because if embodies goes up and, and also it, the systems become less efficient. So. Do you kind of find that sort of moving forward because you're kind of looking at localising designs in different areas, do you, are you going to start finding that even though there's different building types, you're going to find there's going to be a, a similarity in the, in the diverse use. So, for example, you might have um, living space, office space, now data centres and things like that. Do you find do you find that will start feeding back into your design philosophies to say, look, well, if we have this kind of use for this building, we'll use this pattern book design with this pattern book control system, with this pattern book circulation and sort of hydraulic brakes and things like that, so you can start blocking things in more. So then you can start estimating yeah, cleverly I, on the way that, I, you know, you'll get the embodied carbon and the calculations and things like that. I think flexibility is, is the key, which I think is, is really what it's driving at. But most developments are generally speculative. You know, we don't get pre-lets, which are obviously the easier ones. Mm-hmm. Speculative commercial development uh, needs to be as flexible as we can. So we often don't know what tenants are going to go in there or even what types, unless it's you know part of the planning you know specifics. So uh, keeping it as flexible is, is a good thing. Hydraulic brakes from an M&E point of view and a design point of view is brilliant because we can then control things on the secondary side completely independent of the primary system. The problem, if you can call it that, is that hydraulic brake is heavy in embodied carbon. It makes your operational energy worse because you have to do the um, heat heat transfer. And and ultimately, for the developer point of view, it takes space, which they're not often not wanting to pay for. So we always have this battle, especially with hydraulic separation, not just because of water quality, which is a whole different (laughs) subject we could go on for talking for hours about, but it's just in flexibility. We would always recommend that they're there, but the cost is enormous, both in in podded and in capital. So often it's not taken on board, but there's definitely a, when it's smaller buildings, no way would you have them. When it's larger buildings, there's definitely a case for it. And that's what we are finding more and more that the larger buildings are definitely putting it in. So so they can measure the tenants energy use and uh, yeah i mean even even without them we, we put meters in everywhere now uh, more meters than you can shake a, shake a fist at. and it's i think it's the the control and the flexibility so if you know if with hydraulic separation you can put in chilled ceilings on the floor you could put fan units on the floor and it doesn't affect the main system you don't have to design it that way and i think that's you could put nothing on the floor if you know you could do natural ventilation there you know we're you know for, for future so i think that's that's the real benefit of them the flexibility there if you have a data center come along if you have a, a leisure you know yeah. there are so many different types of tenants now not just 
in central London, anyway, just the, the lawyers and the, the banks. And you know, there's, there's, there's so many different types of people now. Um, and I think the ability to turn down is a lot better locally, which is a real big benefit. Because there's the issue of just stripping out all, all those fittings when the tenant comes along and decides that we don't, we don't want that. So, Yeah, yeah. I mean, we don't uh, recommend Cate uh, anymore because of that reason. It often needs to be put in because of letting the building and, and things like that or the, the logistics of getting it up, some of these tall towers and things like that. But I think um, having that flexibility there for the tenant to do what is suited to their occupancy and their business is is the better way of, of, of putting it in. But that's the whole body carbon debate that I think we'll be having for, for, for a long time as well. Excellent. And Glenn, just looking at the kind of the sort of future, how the manufacturer can help consultants like like Ed with, like you said, the, the dynamic. How, how much influence do you think the manufacturers will will have in the in the future? Because you've got the knowledge of your systems, and perhaps you've got data coming back to Gronfoss well, that you can well, help well, feedback consultants. Had to over the past few years, we've had to kind of like metamorphosize quite a bit, and this is because we've had a, a really good understanding that it's not just about a product that you supply. It's only half the story. So the product does the work. What we've had to branch out in quite heavily in Grunfoss is application management. So we kind of look at the application. We look at how we can dynamically affect that yeah, with aims. So it's not just a case we build it cheaper, faster, better. That's like looking inwards. And we had to have a, in martial arts we call it wide view. You have to look out. And what you have to kind of think about is, A, what products we need to put into the market, B, how how can we help affect our clients in a positive way? So, for example, if we, if we go and see a consulting engineer, we understand that he has needs to fulfill. So what we do is we use our products and application knowledge to help him fulfill that need where he can fulfill the end client's need. So effectively, rather than just saying we're going to put this product in, we've had to change to say, well, we'll kind of consult with them to help them. But then we have to look both ways as well. So we're kind of looking all the way down to FM. So we, you know, we, we see the whole value chain. And we, and we kind of have to change that way. And, and we've done quite a lot towards that. And as you'll see with products coming out in the future, it won't so much be commodity products, but it will be system products. It will be products that encompass other products inside with a design philosophy. And then we'll project manage that all the way through, all the way through consultancy, M&E, through to FM. So, so we're metamorphosizing as a business to, to see these changing needs. And, and this is what it is. It's not much about products. It's about the way Grunfoss work. It's about our philosophy towards the world. And we always have our underpinning things because we were going on about energy and carbon stuff and it was really untrendy. We've been doing it for years. Yeah, it's just that it's just come to the fore now. So we're adapting to make that more effective. Can you ever see you taking back those pumps at the end of life? Well, we do. We do actually. We do have schemes, in fact, with some of the domestic building services uh, partners that will take pumps back and we have taken pumps back on wider schemes as well and in fact the recyclability of our own products is a lot of it is at 99% so there are schemes there that will affect it but a lot of people 
tend to want to do it themselves because they can also have partners that can take and break down those pumps for them. I think it's the ability for those pumps to be recycled that's actually the important factor as opposed to who actually takes them and does the recycling. So as long as you make sure those pumps are recyclable and you can and as I said, disassemble. That's exactly. And that's one of the important things that we've actually been working on. In fact, we won't produce a pump unless it's at least 10% more efficient than its predecessor and is also as recyclable as it can possibly be. So it's about looking at all of the little, as you said, it's the little things combined that actually will make, create the big picture, which will make the difference in the future. Yes, yeah, the material banks, isn't it? Yes. And pumps are obviously part of that. Exactly. And are you, is that something, conversations you have? I mean, this is going a little, maybe a little bit further into the no, future. End of life, I, I don't think is something that we have developed enough as a, as a consultancy uh, or industry, really, to, to specify how much it needs to be re- recyclable or reusable. We talk about a lot about circularity uh, in recent years, and it must be capable of doing it. But I don't think there's an actual, you know, clear measurement, especially with, you know, pumps, for example, of, you know, is the casing does can that be just taken apart and then a new impeller put in the middle of it or, or, or however it, it's not specified enough yet I don't think I think the problem with that is you know it's however many years away and we don't think about it that we're not incentivized to think about how far it is enough away so so maybe through legislation or <laughs> unfortunately legislation is the way that <laughs> we all plus. do it because otherwise cost is the cheaper way just to have one that isn't <laughs> unfortunately money rules rules it so that's uh, yeah I was going to ask you on refrigerants being such a large part of the whole life cost of a building. Is that something you're looking at other refrigerants and propane natural refrigerants or is it something you're going to wait for the market to (coughs) develop? Yeah, so we speak to the the big manufacturers quite a lot about this and as much as there's been obviously a big jump towards heat pumps and heat pumps are not as adept at using the new refrigerants as the the chillers are. So... um, the sort of one, two, three, four ZE uh, they're in chillers you can't use currently in air source heat pumps. So uh, I think you know we're pushing manufacturers saying you know how can you reduce your, your GWP on this? And they already have in the last eighteen months gone that way. And they still, but they're still probably three, four years away from actually having the the compressors there that they can do the the heating element really more than anything else with those other refrigerants. So we're still at our R thirty twos and. Um, I'm going to remember them. Forget the numbers now, but five one three A, I think it is. Um, and that will, that will change the calculations significantly. Yeah, yeah, and, and yeah, the global warming potential, as you say, has a, has a has a massive effect. But also how they are reducing the leak, the leaks, and therefore how much you need to top up, and that comes into it a lot. And it is making a significant difference when we when we do change those on the whole life carbon. But when we're doing these initial studies, we can't we can't you know assume that Make that's going to that happen. And, yeah. and that's, that's ultimately you know we talk about um, systems within the building. We need to get that feedback on it, but we can't do that almost right at the beginning. We have to make a number of assumptions and see where we get to, and, and then go beyond it. And it's interesting, Glenn, talking about systems. You know, a lot of the the buildings that were built sort of even 20, 25 years ago have three port control in it. And, you know, that's not where we are. PIVCs are as where the industry would always put in as default now. So it's how you retrofit uh, pumping systems 
valving systems to take into account that there might be three port valves without changing every single emitter around the building, without changing because that's a that's a massive embodied carbon story. You know, the in air handling, if you have to replace every single emitter or every single fan unit in the building, that's a hell of a lot of embodied carbon. But actually, we've still got to make it as efficient as we can in operationally and changing the the certain aspects, making pumping locally, as we were talking about, yeah. is a way of making things more efficient. So, I think. <laughs> Our life just got complicated, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's trying to get the balance right, though, isn't it? And it's where that balance point is is continuously shifting. Yeah, agreed. Um, and, and every building is different. And that's that's the really clear thing to, to get across. It's horses for courses, it's sizes, it's what the developer necessarily wants, it's the end of lease, it's what was installed in the building at the moment, what can be, what the planning restrictions are. There's so many different assets and facets to, to try and integrate and so, make the best yeah. decision. How, how much is being? Are you being able to retain? You know, mm, uh, the the problem is with M and E is we're all governed by subsidy guide guide M and how long it lasts, and that's the benchmark about what it is. And so when you go into a building and you look at a pipework system, and you go, oh yeah, go down there, and it says, oh that can last twenty five years, and oh yeah, it's been there for twenty six years. <laughs> it must be absolutely knackered. <laughs> Let's get rid of it. Um, so uh, that guide, in my opinion, needs to be relooked at in the context of Im- embodied carbon. Unfortunately, uh, with water quality is the biggie. If you can have records uh, of the systems from the beginning of the buildings to, to where it is now, and it's been well maintained, and you've got those, and you know the water quality has been good, you know there's going to be a very little degradation. That's the one in in the in in the pumping system, and that'll be hard to find out without the the logbooks. Exactly that. So you know we have to do loads of tests. Uh, on on the water that's in there and over time to see you know if you do get a lot of iron in the system to see you know what's going on with that and then to make a judgment effectively of whether you can keep the pipe work and the other thing is that if we are changing pumping systems you know warranties you know you have to have all warranties everything's built around warranties and <laughs> it's do you ever when you kind of do your assessments and measurements do you ever kind of look at dynamic value so things like specific energy so basically you know you can you can take something like a motor with a flow sensor and you can work out the you know the the watts to water value and see the dynamic change so you can see the denigration in the pipes just through the actual yeah so uh, this, energy this is this is where it comes um where we probably need to make some improvements and the 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 two main pieces of software that we model in is IES and TAS and their inputs are governed by the software effectively and uh, pumping like that is not one of those aspects Um, so for specific fan powers we have that it has an input we can put that in in any place but for specific pump powers if you want to call it that I'm quite surprised about that it doesn't have that specific input into it so uh, I think we all would love to do that um, because that's what we do for other systems you know if they're 100% 20% we have those different values for that but I think for um, for pumping I don't think it's there with the software admittedly I might have got it wrong but I, the last time I looked it does, because it's not there the, because what it gives you an insight into is inside the pipes where you can't see and in systems that you can't see so you can see the dynamic changes and you know you can you can watch the gradual dick decay so this will say whether your system's going to last that amount of time, whether it stays as efficient, whether the FM contractor can go and do a quick service and then bring the energy 
usage back down again. And Completely. I think, ultimately, that's metering again. Yeah. And we just don't have that in buildings. On specific, true, true. You, you know, we, we now specify meters on every single pump. Mm. We, we wouldn't have done that three years ago. And that's the only way you can actually pick up whether it was is there or not. But most pumps have drives on nowadays. So v- yeah, and VSDs. And yeah, v- yeah v- v- VSDs. So you can pick up that value. You could, you know. if the systems were capable of doing it, <laughs> or people looked at them. Yeah, and, true, and, true, and I think yeah. that you know, I was going to come uh, earlier to to um, to BMS. You know, there's been a, I, I often walk into existing buildings and look at the BMS, and there's faults, <laughs> and they've just been silenced. Yeah. Um, and, and it's because either there are so many, or they're just not exacting enough. Mm. And I think that's where energy analysis of buildings um, through you know the, the, the stuff we do have, uh, not just meters, but you know VSD drives, etc., is an important thing to analyze what the building's doing now and. What can be done? I think this is one of the pluses of digital applications, really, because like you were saying about BMSs and the red lights and things like that, with digital actuaries, it's basically on the cloud, so you can actually put these systems in without much Im- impact on buildings like massive control cabinets and things like that. But the thing is, when it starts flagging up on phones and iPads and things, they become annoying. Yeah. So they kind of tend to do... So it changes the behaviour of people. And not only is it coming up with a little red light on the wall it's actually coming up on the client's phone as well so I think it kind of drives change and I think that's how BMSs are going to affect in the future if the FM contract is set up correctly which if the FM yeah (laughs) that's a very good note to end on because we're we're near the end of our time so thanks very much thank you very much thank you thank you you. I I hope everybody got something out of it I I certainly did and I think complication is one of the key words here and people like Ed and, and Glenn are kind of working closely across the industry to, to overcome these challenges. Yeah, definitely. Well, thanks so much, everybody. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Until the next podcast. Thank you. Thank you.